Now, extinction is a different kind of death. It's bigger. Sorrow, anger, mourning. Don't mourn, organize. What if you found out that using the DNA in museum specimens and fossils maybe up to 200,000 years old could be used to bring species back? What do people think about it? You know, do you want extinct species back? Coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. My name is Sophia Osborne, and today I'm going to tackle a big question. Should we bring back species from the dead? I'm talking about something called de-extinction, where selective breeding, cloning, or genetic engineering is used to create living replicas of species we've lost. De-extinction isn't science fiction anymore. In 2013, an organization called Revive and Restore, which, among other projects, is trying to resurrect the passenger pigeon and woolly mammoth, hosted a TEDx de-extinction conference with the National Geographic Society. I uh, just imagine that someone handed you a thumb drive with the sequence of DNA for some extinct species. Just imagine that somehow you could get your hands on a DNA molecule with that matching sequence. Now again, just bear with me. Just imagine that you could get that DNA into a cell, and you could coax that cell to divide, and that it would become an embryo. Would you be able to bring back a species from extinction, something that hadn't seen the light of day for millions of years? If you compare the extinctions that have happened recently to what you see in the fossil record, you can see that in some groups, like mammals and birds and amphibians, uh, we are going way beyond the way it used to be. We're about maybe 100 or 1,000 times higher than before. So we could be entering the sixth mass extinction in the past half billion years. Really, it's up to us and what we do that decides whether we end up on that list. So perhaps the extinction could be a part of the strategy that keeps us from getting on that list. The event was meant to showcase de-extinction technologies and to talk about the ethical implications of de-extinction. With titles like Second Chance for Tasmanian Tigers and Fantastic Frogs, How to Bring Passenger Pigeons All the Way Back, and de-extinction, a game-changer for conservation, the talks highlighted the quote-unquote new age of expansion that de-extinction could bring. Many of the speakers were leaders in the field of de-extinction. Stuart Brand, the founder of the Long Now Foundation, which created Revive and Restore, gave the first talk of the day. Beth Shapiro, an evolutionary paleobiologist at UC Santa Cruz, who wrote the book How to Clone a Mammoth, The Science of De-Extinction, talked about the possibilities of using ancient DNA for de-extinction projects. And Ben Novak, a biologist who is notorious for his obsession with the passenger pigeon, talked about trying to bring the long-lost bird species back. These speakers are also, more often than not, the people you will see quoted in mainstream media articles about de-extinction. Whether they're in the National Geographic, New York Times Magazine, or Wall Street Journal, 
Most feature articles on de-extinction tend to focus on the scientists tenaciously trying to bring back lost species. Conveniently, these scientists are usually the ones using the shiniest technology, genetic engineering or cloning, rather than selective breeding, which humans have been doing since the dawn of agriculture. Add to the mix some Photoshop pictures of woolly mammoths and saber-toothed cats, and you have the perfect story of a new scientific frontier. But this story is largely incomplete. Ethical questions are posed as afterthoughts in the narrative of de-extinction, when really, they should be at the forefront. Today, I hope to bring you deeper into the story, to push past the cool science of de-extinction and into the questions it poses to us as a human species. I first learned about de-extinction in an environmental ethics class I took last year. This fall, I had the opportunity to take an entire 400-level seminar just on de-extinction with Dr. Jennifer Welchman at the University of Alberta. It was likely the first class to ever be run in philosophy on the topic of de-extinction. We learned a lot over the semester and talked about things like authenticity, wildness, obligations, reparations, and who should make the decisions around de-extinction. I want to give you a glimpse into what taking this class was like. First, though, it's important to understand the science around de-extinction. Giant tortoises wander the Galapagos archipelago. Weighing over 500 pounds and living over 150 years, these animals were fuel for Darwin's theory of evolution and for pirates looking for sustenance. There were once 15 identified species of Galapagos tortoises, but only 11 survived today. One of the lost species is the Floriana tortoise, which was eradicated from the island that shares its name back in the 1800s. But all hope isn't lost for this species. There's a chance to de-extinct them. Scientists have found hybrids of the species on other islands and are hoping to use these hybridized individuals to bring the Floriana tortoise back. The plan, though, isn't to use genetic engineering or cloning. No, the scientists are going to use a process called backbreeding to de-extinct them. By selectively breeding together the hybrids that share the most Floriana tortoise DNA, they hope to get closer and closer to the real thing. Eventually, when the tortoises are close enough to the ones that used to roam Floriana, the scientists will let evolution take over by putting the animals back on the island and letting them adapt to their environment naturally. But there are a few problems with backbreeding as a route to de-extinction. While using this technique skirts some of the costs and ethical dilemmas of genetic engineering, it isn't a viable option for many of the species we might like to bring back. For backbreeding to work, the traits of the species we're trying to de-extinct need to be preserved in some way in their living descendants, so in most cases, they need to have gone extinct rather recently. Backbreeding can also take a long time to implement. In the case of the tortoises, they take over 20 years to reach sexual maturity, and the offspring that are eventually produced by this selective breeding will never be genetically identical to the species you were trying to recreate. So what are the alternatives? There are two other so-called pathways to de-extinction. One is cloning, where a preserved cell from an extinct species would be injected into the egg cell of a host animal, and the host would carry the clone to term. The resulting offspring would have the same nuclear genome as the ex extinct donor. But there are major problems with the viability of cloning. For one, high-quality cells are needed to make cloning happen, and for most extinct species, we don't have those kinds of samples. We would only really be able to clone the species whose tissues we have purposefully collected and banked. But even then, the viability of the cells declines over time as the tissues sit frozen in biobanks, which doesn't bode well. There is one more way we could de-extinct species, genetic engineering, 
which some scientists believe is the most likely path to de-extinction. While cells decay quickly after death, DNA from even long extinct species can be harvested and sequenced. Scientists can then take the genome of a similar species and edit it, changing the base pairs to make them match the DNA of the extinct species. With the current technology we have, scientists still wouldn't be able to make a lot of changes or make the DNA match perfectly, but they can try to figure out the changes that would make the most impact and implement those. At this point, cloning would take over, and the new genomes would be inserted into the egg cells of a surrogate mother, resulting in offspring that have the same genome as the extinct species. This is the type of technology being used by scientists to try to resurrect species like the woolly mammoth, passenger pigeon, and Tasmanian tiger, and has generated a lot of interest from the public and media. In all of these cases, though, what we are creating aren't identical copies, they're proxies. Even in the cases of cloning and gene editing, the way the genes are expressed in their environment could differ. There's also the whole problem of behavior. How will these quote-unquote resurrected animals learn to behave like their extinct predecessors? However, I think there's a much more interesting question lying beneath this scientific one. Would the new individuals be authentic in a philosophical sense? Even if they are genetically identical and even behave exactly the same way, are they still the same? This is what we call the authenticity question. To try to answer this question, many philosophers make an analogy between restoring extinct species and restoring things like important artworks and destroyed natural habitats. Is there something inherently more valuable about the original than there is about the copy? If they are exactly alike, how can they be different in value? In essence, are de-extinction scientists trying to fake nature to have us accept a forgery instead of the original species? In his essay, Faking Nature, Robert Elliott poses this thought experiment. Imagine you have been promised a Vermeer for your birthday. The day arrives and you're given a painting which looks just like a Vermeer. You are understandably pleased, but your pleasure doesn't last for long. You're told that the painting you are holding is not a Vermeer, but instead an exact replica of one previously destroyed. How would you feel? Disappointed? What if the person who gave you the gift insisted that there isn't a difference between the replica and the original? Obviously, there is a difference, the genesis of the painting. The genesis of a thing does seem to have an effect on value, including things in the environment. Think about the common way nature is framed. People go out into the wilderness to connect with something pristine, something untouched, untainted by humans. If we know then that the supposed pristine nature we're entering is actually a fake, a human creation, that would seem to change its value to us. Can we say the same thing about species? Imagine you're out on a hike when you see a flock of passenger pigeons fly overhead. At first, you're excited, but then you remember that the passenger pigeon went extinct due to overhunting. These pigeons you're seeing are actually the result of humans tinkering around with DNA in a lab. They aren't the result of a history of evolution. They're the result of human creation. They're not natural, they're artificial. Knowing this, do you feel differently about their value? Some philosophers reject the Genesis argument especially when it comes to species. As the ethicist Douglas Campbell points out, with landscapes and works of art, it is reasonable to want your grandchildren to see the exact same thing that you saw as a child. The Mona Lisa in the Louvre, the Grand Canyon in all its glory, having them see just a copy, a replica of the Mona Lisa or a human-constructed Grand Canyon, wouldn't be satisfactory. But when it comes to something like the white rhino, you would never expect your grandchild to see the exact individual that you saw as a child. That would be impossible, 
individual members of a species die, but new members take their place. In this way, Campbell argues that when it comes to species, a copy is just as good as the original, since every individual is a result of reproduction anyway. He says there's nothing special about de-extinction. It's reproduction, just with a time delay and a lot of human intervention. Whichever way you stand on the authenticity of the individuals produced through de-extinction, there's another important question. Could the de-extinct species ever really be wild? What does wildness mean? That's a big, loaded question. Think back to what we talked about before, the way nature is often portrayed as an escape from human civilization, a way to reconnect with something pristine and untouched by humans. This idea of nature is fraught with problems. From the way it erases indigenous people's historic presence on the land, to the way it seems to stop us from imagining a world in which humans cohabitate with the natural environment. But still, there's something enticing about this idea of untainted wildness. If we do value wildness, does that mean we lose something when we interfere with the genomes of wild organisms? Could it even make the natural environments we value less wild? If wildness means a lack of human intervention, we may be out of luck. The new reality we live in of climate change and mass extinction is turning everything on its head. To preserve ecosystems and species will likely mean a lot of human intervention. So is it worth it? De-extinction might seem like playing God, like interfering with evolution and the natural order of things, a way to make the world around us less wild and more artificial. Maybe that kind of human intervention can never be justified. But maybe de-extinction is more than just justified. Maybe it's our moral imperative. Do we owe it to species to bring them back? Many people say we are now in the Anthropocene, a new geological time period defined by human dominance over the environment. We are also in the midst of an extinction event run rampant. The current extinction rate is said to be at somewhere between 100 and 1,000 times normal background levels. From insects and amphibians we haven't even discovered yet, to megafauna like the white rhino, southern resident orca, and mountain gorilla, many species are teetering on the brink of extinction. Many more are gone, maybe forever. Through a combination of overhunting, habitat destruction, introduced species, and climate change, humans as a species have become the biggest threat to life on this planet. Through our world domination, we've led to the extinction of many species. Do we have a responsibility to make reparations for those harms? And if so, what should those reparations look like? We seem to have an instinct that human-caused extinction is wrong, that killing the last member of an endangered species is worse than killing a random member of a non-endangered species. But can we really have obligations to a species as a whole? Unlike individuals, species don't really have interests and they can't really suffer. However, the philosopher Holmes Rolston sometimes seen as a quote-unquote eco-fascist, argues that killing a species is a type of super-killing that destroys a whole natural lineage and history and is morally worse than killing an individual. If we accept that we have a duty to try not to cause extinction, then does that mean that we have an obligation to the species we've killed off? There are two kinds of reparations we could look at in this case. We could be forward-looking and take responsibility for our actions and try to prevent more extinctions in the future. On the other hand, we could try to repair the harm we've caused by bringing species back through de-extinction. Some people argue that de-extinction is a quote-unquote techno-fix, a band-aid solution to what is really an underlying social problem, human hubris and domination over the planet. It is, I think, 
a justifiable worry that de-extinction may allow us to continue living in this world in an unsustainable way. Will de-extinction allow us to erase the mistakes of our past and stop us from learning from them? But an obligation to the species we've wronged may not be the only justification for de-extinction. It could also have potential conservation benefits. By bringing species back, we could increase biodiversity and restore important keystone or symbiotic species to their places in their ecosystem. The scientists who are working on making proxies of species like the woolly mammoth and the auric, the huge ancestor of modern cattle, argue that restoring these grazers to their traditional habitats would open up more grassland and stimulate their ecosystems. But some conservationists argue that de-extinction would be a distraction from other conservation efforts and divert resources away from trying to preserve the biodiversity we still have. If you're willing to look at justifications for de-extinction from an anthropocentric point of view, you open up a whole new set of possibilities. This is a Maori tracker whistling the call of the huia, a New Zealand bird that went extinct from overhunting and habitat loss in the 20th century. The huia were sacred to the Maori, and their feathers and skins were used to symbolize a person's ranking. The Maori have supported efforts to try to de-extinct the huia since it is of such great cultural importance to them. That cultural significance can go hand in hand with tourism. Countries and indigenous groups could make money from having dodo birds or Tasmanian tigers on display. Imagine being able to go on a safari through an ice age ecosystem, watching as mammoths cross your path. It would be pretty cool, right? Of course, there are caveats with these anthropocentric justifications. From an animal welfare perspective, the idea of breeding animals to be kept in zoos and parks seems cruel. And maybe more insidiously, we could see the rise of a whole industry around patenting genomes and commodifying wild animals as objects. There would also likely be a whole exotic pet trade devoted to de-extinct species, and there would probably be people who would pay a lot of money to be able to shoot, wear, or eat previously extinct species. The problems we face as a society wouldn't go away with this new technology. They would probably just be amplified. As you can see, there could be a lot of potential benefits to de-extinction, and with great power comes great responsibility. It begs the question, who should be making the decisions about de-extinction, and who should benefit? On the one hand, it does seem like de-extinction is something that should not be decided lightly. It's worrisome to think of scientists hold away somewhere, creating mammoths, and then releasing them unchecked into the environment we all share. But on the other hand, should we let moral objections to genetic engineering halt progress on something that could have a real benefit to conservation? How do we avoid letting de-extinction become just a band-aid solution? How do we make sure there is tangible social change being made while we scramble to preserve biodiversity? I know I've probably posed a lot more questions than I've answered. I guess I still don't quite know how I feel about de-extinction. Taking a whole class on this topic was so interesting. My classmates and I got to have discussions about all of these issues, delving deep into each one. Now that the class is over and we've all had time to think about our stance on de-extinction, I wanted to bring in two of my classmates to share their thoughts, which are on quite different ends of the spectrum. Okay, I'll go first. Um, my name is Christine Colborn. I'm in my fourth year, um, double majoring in English and philosophy. And the reason I took this course was because it was a requirement that fit into my schedule since I just decided to go for a double major like at the beginning of this year. So 
my name is Jeremy Hoofslute. I am a uh, double major combined honors political science and philosophy. Um, I took this course because uh, my thesis and my main interest in philosophy is in environmental ethics. Great. And so how much did you guys know about um, de-extinction before you came into this class? Um, I didn't really know very much about it at all. I had heard about the Mammoth Project back in 2010 when it happened, but I didn't think about it past that. Yeah, pretty similar. I knew about the Mammoth Project. I knew that there was some... I I heard about Pleistocene Park um, before coming to the class, and I was uh, picking uh, Dr. Welchman's brains about it uh, before the class even started. And... I guess not really knowing anything about de-extinction except maybe just what it, sort of the definition of it is. How did you guys feel about it coming into the class? Um, I felt um, from the beginning that it was probably a bad idea, although throughout the class I was bouncing back and forth on uh, some of the problems that you could raise for de-extinction would almost be easy to just knock down because of some of the practices that we're already doing with science and technology. So yeah, throughout the course, I sort of ping-ponged a little bit on my stance. Coming into it, I was pretty apprehensive uh, from like an environmental standpoint. I was really concerned about um, now extinct species uh, becoming invasive species in the wild. For sure. So now that the class is over and you're working on your final papers and everything, um, how, do you, how do you feel about it? Has it changed um, your take on it? Um, no. Well, I'm against de-extinction. And even gene editing, really. So, yeah, it, um, even though it gave me a lot of um, different viewpoints on the other side, like things that I never thought, that I thought were bigger problems than they were from my point of view, but it seems like the other side could easily knock that down. So there was a lot of back and forth, but in the end, I think it's a bad idea. I've, uh, to be honest, I've become more open to it. Um, <clears throat> I'm. I became more open to the idea of a de-extinction use for uh, environmental conservation purposes. Um, like, uh, for example, if you have like linchpin species in an environment, it may be a good idea to bring them back to preserve the entire environment. And kind of after thinking through my own thoughts um, and going through the course here, I've become pretty open to de-extinction for anthropocentric reasons. I, I kind of stand where it probably permissible and there's probably good reasons to bring back uh, species for anthropocentric reasons but there's not a whole lot of reasons to bring back these species for the species themselves because well they're dead and they don't really have interest in being brought back Mm -hmm. yeah i just feel like it's kind of a slippery slope i just am kind of in the stance that nature will figure out a way um i also think that we should conserve biodiversity in on the planet but maybe in a way of like taking plants and animals that we have now and putting them into an enclosed area, which would be something like um, the Eden Project. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but on a larger scale with maybe having whole ecosystems inside of there. So they reclaimed an old clay mine that was basically devoid of life or any use. Like it's a whole big conservation project. And I think that biodiversity could... um, you could foster it in those kind of places without having to edit genes and things like that just by controlling environments in these enclosed spaces. Um, But granted, you will lose things like the authenticity 
um, natural nature, that kind of thing, or wildness. Um, yeah, it was an interesting place to take that. I I certainly value naturalness a lot and like a natural value, and I I really encourage us to not really intervene um, in ecosystems um, because there is kind of there is a natural goodness to these ecosystems. Um, there's something something good about just that that ecosystem that is just in virtue of its naturalness. Um, I would be more interested in biodiversity that grows and develops out of the environments that are just changing or if we can set something up that could be sustainable on its own then those environments would just be you know like bugs and amoebas and all these things would just be growing on their own and if it's just to reclaim the environment maybe there's ways that we could um, if the creatures that are created aren't even really going to be those creatures maybe we could simulate this in some other um, like false way you know spreading dung digging it up digging up the the ground the way that an auric would just with machinery rather than I don't know I don't know to me that just seems like so much human intervention when we could do yeah when we could do something maybe like once or you know like bring something back and hopefully put it into the ecosystem and then not have to intervene more like it it, it just seems like that would be so much work <laughs> But I think we're always going to have to intervene, like constantly, because our environment is always changing and we're never going to be stopped in one place. So we're always adapting and we're always going to have to adapt. And so, I don't know, I mean, yes, we might change the world into a completely human run where we have like, you know, underground water and everything where we've got oases around the world, but they're not natural. I don't think that would that would be a bad thing. See, uh kind of kind of my response to that is kind of creating these artificial domes and even using kind of cat machinery to dig up stuff the same way an auric would it seems uh, like a lot uh, a lot more wildness and kind of a lot more infringement upon the environment we could we could just release a couple of aurics and they would do all of that for us and while the oryx themselves probably wouldn't be wild in many senses, it would be it would be far less of an intrusion upon the wildness of the um, of these ecosystems than to take cat machinery or even even just shovels if we want to be holistic and start digging stuff up, send teams of people into into areas to knock down trees the same way an oryx would. Um, yeah, it's, it seems to me that even even though the orcs themselves wouldn't be wild, they they would be a lot better at preserving wildness. Um, kind of kind of my my thoughts on all of this is we, it would be silly to think of the extinction as an end in itself, um, as we've kind of come to an, uh, an agreement here. Um, if we bring back a mastodon, it's not really wild, and even to some extent, it's it's become this artifact in a sense, but. The real, what's really going to be the kicker for uh, the extinction is going to be the instrumental effects of it. And that's really where you and I have uh, had a disagreement on this is, um, are, do the goods of the extinction outweigh the bads? That was Christine Colburn and Jeremy Hoofslute, two of my classmates, discussing de-extinction. Now you've had a chance to look at de-extinction. 
not just the scientific possibilities, but also the potential moral and ethical dilemmas it poses. So what do you think? Tweet us your thoughts at Terra Informa and check out our website, terrainforma.ca, for more information about de-extinction. Thank you to Hannah Cunningham, Carter Gorzitsa, Amanda Rooney, and Dr. Jennifer Welchman for their help with this episode. I've been your host, Sophia Osborne. Catch you next week.